there was some discussion at the beginning as to whether or not it should be like more almost like a multi-purpose building you know where one day you'd be doing repertory theater and one day you'd be having blood donations and picking up a bus pass or whatever and then fitting in the cinema but thankfully it was decided no you know it's a cinema that's what it's going to be Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. It's an all-UK episode. First, I talk to the director of Scotland's top silent film festival, Hipfest in Bowness. Then, how English music hall comedy shaped American silent film comedy. Biographer David Crump on Chaplin's mentor, Fred Carnot. Get the podcast that's better than Kippers on Toast. Subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, mate. I say hip fest, and you might think flannel shirts and geometrically shaped beards and sipping craft IPAs. But no, it's not Portland, Oregon hip. This is hip fest in Bowness, a port town of 15,000 on the Firth of Forth in the Scottish Lowlands, about 20 minutes west of Edinburgh. The Hippodrome Silent Film Festival is named for the 1912 Hippodrome Theatre, the oldest purpose-built movie theatre in Scotland. The 12th HipFest starts March 16th in Bowness, and will include both live screenings with top musicians like Neil Brand and Stephen Horn, and an online component. Alison Strauss is its director, and I started by asking her to tell us about the town of Bowness. Bowness is uh, quite a small town. It's on the the banks of the Forth Estuary, and I suppose well, it's in the uh, central belt of Scotland, around halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. And it's um it's a really interesting town. Actually, it's got a, a long a history, an industrial heritage history around mining originally, and then it was a port town for a while and had a shipbreaking industry and in fact some of the, the hippodrome cinema where we have the festival the, the wooden paneling within the hippodrome is made um the original paneling is from of the broken up ships from the shipbreaking industry in the estuary just outside yeah yeah so the theater itself is quite historic isn't it Oh, yeah, I, I think it definitely deserves that that label. Quite <laughs> historic. It's it's the first purpose-built cinema in Scotland. So obviously, films were being projected in other venues, and in fact, the the original proprietor of the Hippodrome, Louis Dixon, he was 
screening uh, films in the town hall and so forth. But he very cannily realised that if um, so he would shoot film footage of the Bonus Fair, which happens every year. And then he realised, you know, if he built the cinema, his own cinema, he could project the films there and charge everybody, the hate or whatever, to come in and see themselves, the many hundreds of people that were in the Bonus Fair. And, and it grew from there. So the plans actually say on them, Picture House, a picture palace, um, the original plan. So it's definitely conceived originally as a purpose-built cinema. Yeah, and it dates back to 1912. There's a cinema in England that dates back to 1911. I think it's the Dukes in, in Brighton, but the, the Hippodrome is 1912. And then, obviously, and then, you know, many cinemas opened in the years after that. So that's interesting that his model was kind of like, you know, we know of the Mitchell and Kenyon films that were rediscovered some years ago. Mm -hmm. You go and shoot your audience in their everyday activities and then exactly. show, show them the film and charge them to come see themselves. Yes, exactly. And I've looked actually, I've been into the library and looked at the old copies of the bonus journal just to see the, the program of, of what kinds of things he had right at the beginning. It was opened... Um, and it was reported in the paper and he clearly did have a mixed program originally, you know, so there was films, you know, short topicals, newsreel, etc., comedies, obviously. And then there'd be a few acts, you know, like somebody juggling with a bedstead or you know, <laughs> spinning plates or whatever it was that they had them doing. And then it just grew. But he was he remained the proprietor. So he so he commissioned an architect, a local architect to design the Hippodrome. And the Matthew Steele was that architect, and he's actually the architect of quite a lot of buildings in the town. And during the festival, the local historian is organising a walking tour to look at the other buildings designed by Matthew Steele. And it's it's unusual, I think, you know, maybe because it was a, a prototype. You know, the the auditorium was completely round, and so the sight lines wouldn't be considered ideal these days. Although we arrange the seats. In the middle, so the sight lines are brilliant now, but um, originally not. Um, oh, but yes, I was going to say that he was so math. So um, Louis Dixon was there right at the beginning in 1912, but he remained the proprietor for decades. And in fact, a lot of people in the town, even now, still call the Hippodrome. They still call it Dixon's um, because <laughs> he he was such a figure um, to the, to everybody that came. So he would be there in his smart suit, welcoming people in macking the children on the back of the head who were not behaving etc <laughs> yeah too bad he's not there to, to do yeah. that today but yeah. get off your phone wow yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah so uh it kept running as a theater all this time or did it no. go uh it went out of business for a while yeah, a familiar story. So we're not. I'm not sure. I haven't been able to find exactly when it showed its last film. It was in the mid seventies. Okay. Um, I don't know which the actual last film was that was screened there. Um, and then it became a bingo hall after that, and then it it ceased trading as that and fell into disrepair for a number of decades and there were pigeons resting <laughs> in the roof and it was in a dreadful, dreadful state. And then it was, so Falkirk Council 
took it on. There was a massive move in the community to rescue it because it's situated right in the centre of the town and it's a beautiful building and and in the heart of the town, literally and metaphorically. And so a lot of people galvanised and raised money and the council backed it and it was bought by the Scottish Historic Buildings Trust who um, from whom the council leased it and there was a big lottery grant and um, it was done up and it was all the restoration work was very much conceived as kind of the the spearhead of regeneration of the area because as a former mining town and a former industrial town you know it need the area did need regeneration you know high in um Sure. Levels of unemployment, etc. And yes, so yeah, and it was reopened in, and let me get this right, 2009, it was reopened. From your description of the town, it doesn't necessarily sound like the kind of place that have, <laughs> have a repertory cinema and a silent film festival by now, but how'd that come about? Uh, well, yeah, I think that's true. It, it does, it's, I suppose you wouldn't choose to build a cinema nowadays in a place that doesn't have a mainline train station. We've got a heritage railway, a heritage okay. steam railway, but it's not connected to a mainline. So the transport links aren't great. And yes, it's not a big metropolis. But, um, originally, there would have been three cinemas in that town. But yeah, it's hard to sustain just one. But um, yeah, I think just because of its its cultural significance and the historical significance of it as Scotland's first purpose-built cinema there's that kind of national pride behind it really and the, because the council and now latterly Falkirk Community Trust have um you know put the put themselves behind it that's we, we've made it work and I joined I joined the trust well the council as a film officer before the Hippodrome was even opened and so I was very lucky to have the task of developing the programme. And there was some discussion at the beginning as to whether or not it should be like more almost like a multi-purpose building, you know, where one day you'd be doing repertory theatre and one day you'd be having blood donations and picking up a bus pass <laughs> or whatever right. and then fitting in the cinema. But thankfully it was decided, no, you know, it's a cinema, that's what it's going to be. But I think, you know, it was evident to me early on that it needed to have something to put it on the map um to make it distinct and a festival is an obvious thing and the obvious festival really was a silent film festival because it kind of bring well, obviously it brings together the the cult the heritage of the building with the heritage of the film medium itself it's a it seems a perfect fit so we did some R&D about it and, um, you know, we'd had a few silent film screenings here and there. And I invited uh, Neil Brand, do you know, you know, sure. Neil Brand, but yeah, to come. He was up, I think, playing in Edinburgh at the Fringe. And I said to him that I was thinking of doing this silent film festival and would he come to see the Hippodrome and just give me his insights. And he came and said how beautiful it was and agreed there on the spot that he would play for us at our first film festival but he did, he said you know I have to you know you have to warn you it's you know it's it's <laughs> you're crazy <laughs> you know who's gonna come but he was totally up for it and totally threw himself behind in fact that first festival he played pretty much every film except for 
I think, except for the closing night, who played the whole weekend, Friday to Sunday, um, and said, you know, it'll break your heart because people won't come. But we've, you know, we've stuck in, and so now we're about to have our twelfth edition. Right. Do you feel like you've built a decent audience for it there? Yeah, I mean, I, this, it's. I think so. It's, I mean, it's relative. I mean, the cinema is small, so although back in Louis Dixon's day, it seated, uh, you know, but some reports say six hundred, some say eight hundred people would be seated in there. Now, our capacity is one hundred and seventy-three. Okay. But we had, I think, when we had our last edition in 2019, we had about seven sellout events. And um, people come now from, you know, they don't just come from the Bowness area or from the Central Belt. They come from all over Scotland and all over the UK. And latterly, people have travelled from, you know, the continent and even from China. We had somebody come and from the States and... And then when we had our online edition, which we were forced to do like many others in uh, 2021, we had people tuning in from even, you know, many, many countries. And I'm hoping to see, you know, that some of them will, will have been so taken with it that they'll they'll make the, the, the pilgrimage to come in real life this year. Yeah. You know, there's a festival that I used to go to in uh, a small town in Ohio. It's not around anymore. But this guy turned up who'd read about it on the internet. <laughs> I think he came from Australia. Oh, and, that's and, I, and I think he didn't really have a sense of just how remote you are from things in a small town in Ohio in America, you know, where there isn't great train service. So uh-huh. we kind of had to adopt him because the poor guy would have just been, <laughs> you know, left in the middle of, you know, it's like being left in a desert. So, you know, we made sure he got to his, his airport and, and all that oh, stuff. Oh, that's so funny. So. You know that we had a really similar experience one, I can't remember, I think it was like 2018 or 19, a guy turned up and, you know, because I, you know, there's lots of regulars there as well. I, I just it was clear that he was new and it turned he was from Canada huh. he hadn't come expressly for the festival but he'd been traveling through Edinburgh for a conference and he saw the poster at Edinburgh station and he thought oh that sounds interesting and managed to get to the bonus and uh, yeah stayed all and exactly as you say he was kind of totally adopted by the there's a there's a sort of fan base called the Hippernauts Okay. sort of self-styled fan club of the hip fest and they adopted him and took him under their wing and showed him around boness and yeah i wonder if he'll come back yeah <laughs> so yeah i mean a big part of this is that you have live music with everything as yeah. festivals tend to do um tell me about that and how that draws um yeah i think it's been really it's really important to me that we have live music uh, that's kind of like my bottom line. I think I think one year I showed the kid and we didn't, we, we you know, you have to show it with Chaplin's full orchestral score and we didn't, we don't have, we don't have an orchestra pit. <laughs> so I think that was the one exception I'd made. But anyway, um, yeah, I mean, the live music, people come for various reasons to the festival to try it because they like the Hippodrome or because... They hear it's some. They've heard good things about the atmosphere, or because they're interested in film or silent film. But sometimes they come because they're interested in the music and the musicians that we have. 
And then sometimes they come and it completely blows them away when they had no idea what impact it makes, you know, the, the right. effect it has of seeing a film with live music. And they, I love, I never get tired of that, actually, that kind of response that people have. And, and it's so exciting for me because I, I've been living with this programme for a year or months and months and months but for me it's it's always a premiere because I'm sitting down and and hearing how the musicians are going to interpret it and what they're going to bring to it on right. the first time often yeah um yes yeah, so you have uh Neil Brand you've got uh, uh Stephen Horn who I've talked to on this podcast and uh I see you also have uh Paul McGann will be who yes. who is a Doctor Who to many people. To me, he's he'll always be I from Withnal and I. <sighs> I know. <laughs> um, but uh, so he's what's he doing at the festival? So he is going to be narrating the French intertitles from the closing night film L'Homme du Large. It's actually something that I saw him heard him do at the San Francisco Silent Film Festival um, a couple of years ago, and I thought it was a great a great thing to do and a great success and his voice was perfect for it and it was it the inter I don't know if you know that film but the intertitles are, the, are very beautiful um in the original French with um you know they're, they're all decorated and it, it's sympathetic to the narrative of the film and so it just really adds something to instead of having the English overlaid to just have his English translation over the top um yes that's what he's doing and he's, he's, I think he's, I don't know whether he was a fan of silent film before he was invited to do that, but he, I think he's really into it now. And I saw he was at Pordenone, um, the, the last time I was there, I okay. think. Yeah. And then also, uh, I think this is a name that Americans don't necessarily know, but Mark Kermode is a major, <laughs> major, uh, movie reviewer in the UK. Uh, but he also has what, it's kind of like a blues band. It's sort of like if yeah. Roger Ebert, you know, came and played his own music or something. Yeah. yeah, he is a very big deal here. He has a huge following, and he has um he has a podcast that I don't know how many millions of followers it has, but you know a lot. And he's the I think he's the critic for the Observer, and he's written various books, and he's he's a real sort of voice for the people with a, a film reviewer. But yes, he's in this. I think he they call it a skiffle and blues band. Okay. And uh, he the, the the lineup is um, him is Mark Kermode, um, Mike Hammond, who's who's in a former life was an academic as well about American um, popular music from the twenties and thirties, and then his son and then Ali Herji and Neil Brand joins them. Okay. And they they yeah I mean they're awesome if you've ever. If you ever have a chance to hear them, or if, I don't think they've played in the States with film, but I'm sure they'd love to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's talk about, yeah, the, the programs that you have. I mean, the first thing is a film called The Loves of Mary, Queen of Scots, a natural subject for a Scottish film festival. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me about this film. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited that we're presenting this because I, I don't think it will have been seen outside of the archivists who've been restoring it love, lovingly, um, except maybe for a but since it was made in, in 1923. 
And what I'd really like to do is sit down in the bonus journal and find out when it, if it, when Louis Dixon screened it at his cinema. Yeah. I'm sure he would have done because it's basically it's a costume drama um, about the life of of Mary Queen of Scots, um, starring Faye Compton, um, American filmmaker, isn't it? Denison Clift, I believe. Okay. Um, but what we're doing because I've invited a storyteller called Andy Cannon um, to come along and in the past he's done I've invited him commissioned him to create a film explainer um, experience you know like the I think people are familiar as well with the idea of a film explainer maybe through the notion of a benshi right <laughs> the idea that somebody would stand in front of the film and explain what was going on in the film maybe reading the intertitles for people that were not able to read them and just elaborating the story and so I've invited Andy to do that with this film and so what we're doing is at the real changeovers he's going to be commenting on how this the film is commenting on Mary's life and what you know what might be going on the politics behind the representation and um, filling in like the gaps and yeah, and maybe not assuming for an, an audience today that everybody is 100% familiar with um, the history of Mary, Queen of Scots as well. So, And then he's going to be supported by these wonderful musicians on uh, cello and guitar and pipes and piano. I think that, and I'm so pleased that we're showing it because it was one of our films that was in our cancelled edition That because we, we were, our 10th edition, our opening night was the the 18th of March. Um, sure. <laughs> and, uh, or maybe it was the 16th. Anyway, it was all cancelled at the last minute. But finally, finally, we're, we're showing the restoration as a premiere. I think it's going to be a really exciting night, actually. So you have bagpipes as an accompaniment? <laughs> well, he says pipes. I don't think uh, they're full-on bagpipes. I think they're a kind of mini... Sort oh, okay. Of, uh, yeah, I think we might all have to be supplied. Wait. No offence to the bagpipers, but we might have to... <laughs> give people earplugs to, to right. <laughs> um yeah that that would be a first for me as far as silent accompaniment goes i got to say <laughs> and then uh there's another scottish uh, themed program journey to the isles yes so this also i was lucky enough to get this year is scotland's year of stories so i was able to get funding for a couple of things in the program it's, I'm really excited about this as well. So that Marjorie Kennedy Fraser was this extraordinary woman who began collecting songs in the Hebrides and in the, around the turn of the century. And that means she would travel out there. She was very, you know, feisty and would just set off on her own. And I think she had, you know, quite, um, you know, elaborate, cumbersome recording equipment. And she would just ask, the people there to perform their traditional songs that they might have sung while they were weaving or spinning or fishing or gutting fish or whatever. And she recorded those songs. And then she um, brought them back. Um, I think she was from Perth. And she then arranged them and toured with them. And in fact, it was a it became a little bit controversial that I, that notion of appropriating um, an indigenous culture and maybe not sufficiently respecting it. But I, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear more about Marjorie Kennedy Fraser and the 
you know the impulse that she had and in some sometimes you think that our perspective and a judgment has i think maybe should take on board the context of where she was coming from at the time but anyway so so but these two films i just came across them by chance when i was rootling around in the collection of the National Library of Scotland Moving Image Archive. And it's two films, she she filmed them herself, um, or, or, you know, just documenting one of her visits. And then there's actually, I don't think there's any intertitles in them, but they're just, they're kind of like really charming home movies really and they've got they feature her family and her grandchildren and just really I really got this sense of her character shining out of these films and I've invited this storyteller Marion Kenny to um to just respond to the films um maybe to talk a similar way to the thing with Andy Cannon just to to talk a little bit more about her life and her endeavour. And Mary Campbell, who is a, fam- a celebrated Gaelic um, Scottish folk singer, is going to be performing alongside her. Um, and it, it's really extraordinary, actually, because when I got in touch with with Marion, I'd actually originally was thinking about her to maybe explore a silent version of Macbeth. But I got talking to her and I just mentioned in passing this, these films about Mar- Marjorie Kennedy Fraser, and she she's mentioned that she had been in the Scottish Portrait Gallery the week before and had seen a portrait of somebody that had transfixed her. And she, when she looked at it more closely, she saw that it was this person, Marjorie Kennedy Fraser, huh. and she just sat in front of it for an hour, just transfixed for some reason. And then a week later, I got I got in touch with her and said, it just felt a bit like it was meant to be. Sure, Quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Now you've got uh, this is something that I actually saw at Portnone uh, last year. The uh, one of the nasty women programs. Oh yes. Uh, uh, tell me about that for people. Well, who don't you'll know. know. I mean, uh, what a fantastic um, curatorial uh, endeavor! I think I love that that theme of um, nasty women. I'm sure your listeners will will know where that the provenance you know where that came from but yes um maggie hennefield and laura horak are the the powerhouses behind that um that notion and they've been um bringing together films that really explore transgressive portraits of women in various ways and I just there's these two films stood out for me as great ones to just bring to the audience in bonus and in fact so the, this is a double bill of The Night Rider and Rowdy Anne. And they've both kind of got this Western background. And I do love a Western. In fact, yeah. Louis Dixon loved a Western, I think, the original. <laughs> We've got that in common. Exhibitors um, love Westerns. They're, they're always reliable money in the bank. So. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was more the money over the heart thing. I don't yeah. know. But um, yes, and they're, lo- they're just lots of fun. They're really good fun. And in fact, um, one of the things I like to do at HipFest is um, – present films in the week the weekend before the festival proper in a community venue in Bowness in the Barony Theatre and it's an exciting it's it's where I'd like to show something that I think is going to really grab people's imagination and they that's one of the one of those films that Rowdy Ann 
I'm going to show there as well in the run up to the festival. Yeah. And, um, you know, Pamela Hutchinson, who's a sure. wonderful uh, writer, and she does the Silent London podcast. She's going to introduce that double bill of uh, gender rebels. Nice. Uh, now, another one I thought was really interesting was Dawn, which is about nurse Edith Cavell, a name that lots of people would have known 50 years ago or 75 years ago, uh, a British nurse who... Um, was eventually uh what shot by the by the germans by the kaiser that brute or something like that um for her yeah, activities that's a big spoiler alert Maybe oh sorry sorry little... <laughs> no but as you say i think people people at the t in 1928 would have been very well aware yes but, yeah, yeah so so tell me about that film because i i'm not aware of it either oh well, I first saw that one at Pordenone actually, and it was it was it was very controversial at the time, um, because of the role that it played in the whole navigation around propaganda and trying and the peacetime diplomacy. So the way that um, Edith Cavell was represented um, was quite sort of sensitive politically. But this film in 1928, it, it's just like a, it's a really gripping um, war drama, I suppose, about this this brave heroine who was working as a, a nurse but just behind the, um, the front lines and effectively saved hundreds of lives by smuggling smuggling soldiers um, from um, German-occupied Belgium uh, during the First World War. And and it's just, just this wonderful performance in the, the centre of it, Sybil Thorndike. Um, if you look on the in our programme on the brochure online, you'll see her, a picture of her. She actually did have a bit of a striking resemblance, I think, to um, Edith Cavell. You'll see she's got this very formidable look about her. Yes. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's very, very tense, very, just everything you'd expect from a wartime drama, really. Uh, it's re it's And we've got it, we've got Stephen Horn accompanying on piano and using his, full repertoire I think of instruments so the probably the flute and the accordion as well and Frank Bocchius and when I when I saw them accompany it at Pordenone I mean you couldn't have you could have heard a pin drop at the end it was so moving but there are different because of the controver controversy there are there were lots of the censors had a field day with it and there it was there are various versions and but the version that we're showing is from the Belgian Royal Film Archive, not the British um, Film Institute. And in well, there's a very interesting talk that accompanies this film by um, Lawrence Napper, who's going to really get under the detail of the difference between the various censored versions and what was going on politically at the time that, that you know, that was behind those censorial uh, decisions. All right, so those are some of the premiere type things that you'll be showing. But uh, there's also some uh, some classics. I mean, you've got a, an audience here that won't have seen everything, presumably. So uh, we've got some Buster Keaton. We've got some Charlie Chaplin. We've got some Laurel and Hardy. And we've got The Unknown with Lon Chaney. So yes. some, some top top quality war horses here. Uh, <laughs> Oh yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about the festival is that, you know, it's it's not 
a festival that's sort of uh, necessarily for, you know, it's not stuffy. It's all about fun. You know, it's about great cinema and definitely there are definitely some titles there that are that people will be discovering for the first time but as you say our audience is very broad it's not an audience of academics it's an audience of people that kind of like to come along and have a good cinema experience and so for many people they won't have seen sure. you know they won't have seen sherlock jr <laughs> or you know or the unknown um and in fact you don't get that many opportunities to see these films on the big screen in a cinema right. and certainly not with live music. So even if people think they've seen, um, you know, the Mark of Zorro, they won't have seen it with, with Neil thundering away at the keys and, and uh, in a, with an audience as well. That's the other thing, you know, just adding the oohs and ahs. I mean, there's nothing like it on a Saturday morning. We have the, um, what we call, so we've got this double bill, of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And that's on a Saturday morning slot, the Geely Jar double bill. And so that's the idea that in the original days of the Hippodrome, you could bring a jam jar or a Geely Jar, as they say in Scotland, um, and you could get into the cinema uh, at a reduced price with your Geely Jar. So now you bring your jam jar with your matching lid and you get two tickets for the price of one. <laughs> and the cinema is packed every year. And it's often there's young people there and maybe their first um, time of seeing a silent film. And you just people laughing, laughing. And yeah, it's just such a nice atmosphere. Yeah, they definitely bear being shown again, these films. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So I have to ask, um, was, uh, the owner of you know Dixon was he just collecting jam? He really liked jam, or he, <laughs> he wanted the empty empty clean jars. I, I think that they were they were used again, you know, weren't they? Okay. So they sold back to the the jam factory, I guess. Okay. I mean, we here in in Falkirk we had um, a Georgian kitchen in one of the Falkirk Community Trust venues where jam making occurred. So there was a period when we were actually reusing the jam jars to make jam in the Georgian kitchen. <laughs> yeah, what else uh, of these, of kind of the war horses, what, do, what are you really excited about showing? I'm personally, I mean, I do love the Laurel and Hardy triple bill because that's a, always a hoot, but I'm so excited to share with people who haven't seen it, the unknown, because I think that people just as going to be shocked <laughs> they're going right. to be surprised i remember well i was shocked when i first saw it i was i was it's the one of the most disturbing films i've ever seen um and also i think there's a whole i don't know whether do you have you do obviously rupaul you know rupaul's drag sure. race yeah so rupaul's drag race is very big over here as well okay and, i can't wait to see how this fits into the unknown <laughs> okay bear with me so in Britain, there was RuPaul's Drag Race UK, and the winner um, of the last one in the UK was a Scottish drag queen called Lawrence Cheney, who um, named himself after Lon Cheney in okay. homage. So maybe I'm thinking there's a whole new audience out there of RuPaul fans who may never have heard of Lon Cheney, but now because of Lawrence Cheney, <laughs> the drag queen, they might be able to give him a shot. So okay. I'm hoping we'll get some new audiences in for that. <laughs> that may be a little hopeful, but... 
Well, I was hoping okay. if, if Lawrence Cheney is listening to this podcast, I've been trying to reach you to get in touch to invite you to come along and introduce <laughs> it, but he's, he's not been returning my calls. Okay. We've got also, we've got a few online events beforehand. So I Oh yeah, let's talk about that. What, uh, yeah. what's the on- online side of it? I mean, you, you well, went, you went to all online last year because you had to. Exactly. So last year it was, we had, um, yeah, and that that was great, actually. I should give ourselves a shout-out because we got you in uh, the Silent London poll. We won Best yes. Online Silent <laughs> Film Festival. So we, we really we put our toes in the water and um, managed. Uh, I'm really glad with the results. So, yeah, this year, although we're not in the festival, we decided not to do a hybrid exactly because it's we're a very, very lean team and it would be – it would be quite a stretch to do that, but we're really concentrating on the live um, film screenings with live music in the cinema. But we realise that there is very much um, an appetite for some kind of online offering. So whilst we're not streaming feature films, um, we are, we've organised these three talks in the run-up. So the first, I don't know when your podcast goes out, but the online premiere of the first talk is tomorrow, um, okay. which is when I'm speaking. That's Wednesday, the 23rd of February. And that's a talk around one of the, the Chinese silent films we're showing, which is quite a rare one to see. Um, the, fil- the feature film being discussed is called A String of Pearls. And that's a wonderful speaker called Dr. Victor Fan who's talking about that. Um, we've got, and that's a free event. We've also got um, the follow, and then every Wednesday. So the following Wednesday, we've got, I've invited the musicians who are um, to, uh, accompanying a really interesting program of films um, made by the Institute of Amateur Cinematographers. And that's um, the composers talking about their approach to creating music for those. And then the, we've got Mark Kermode, uh, as I say, the, the one you say as a bit like Roger Ebert over here, um, talking about with Neil Brand about composing music for the City, City Girl. And then we're also trying for the first time to stream live from the Hippodrome a couple of talks and that will be a talk about representations of Mary, Queen of Scots in popular culture, just um, on the back of the film The Loves of Mary, Queen of Scots, and um, the talk about Dawn that I mentioned um, with Lawrence Napper. So we're really hoping that that experiment of streaming from the venue will go well so that we can maybe in subsequent years we can try and expand that and, and share with people the the music and the films as they're happening. Um, As you'll know, the rights situation is much different for streaming um, to showing in a venue. But if we know, yeah, if we can factor that in from the right from the beginning, we might be able to to get the rights um, next year for some more, to add some more of that kind of thing. So will these these talks, will they be up for a certain time after their, after they debut? Yes, yes, they will. So you can head over to um, the website that we have. It's www.hipfest.co.uk. We've also got there a sort of back catalogue of of Q&As that we've done over the last year since the pandemic, a really 
interesting musicians there so again um john uh, john sweeney um stephen horn neil brand um the musicians that we had for um who did the restoration the music for sparrows um last year and yeah just lots of good stuff there and the online element is we're not just we're trying to really we've learned a lot about how to create a community online as well just outside the screenings so there's people you know we've got a face um facebook page hitfest at home and people can join in chat there and we have games there and quizzes and you know people sharing lots of fun stuff so you people one of the things that i think people really enjoyed when in the lockdown that we you know, gave a platform to was that way to have a sort of virtual alternative, virtual community, um, because that's what people were missing when the In Life Festival wasn't able to go ahead. We tried as best we could to give a sort of a good substitute to that. The 12th Hippodrome Silent Film Festival runs March 16th through 20th in Bonness. Online programs are already available and will continue through the festival. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. the name Fred Carno only from its mirror reflections. We see his comedy training in the work of protégés like Charlie Chaplin and Stan Laurel, and even today the phrase Fred Carno's Army, used by politicians like Theresa May, means pretty much exactly in England what a reference to Keystone Cops would mean in America. Something chaotic and farcical, a mess. Now the man himself, and a comedy legacy that has lasted from the Victorian Music Hall to still have recognizable airs on TV today, comes to life in David Crump's exhaustively researched biography, Fred Carnot, The Legend Behind the Laughter, from Bruin Books. I spoke with David Crump from London. Carno is just sort of a spectral figure to me. You know, you, you hear of yeah. him as, as just a name attached to Chaplin and Laurel. Yeah. So it's amazing to me that you're able to almost document him day by day uh, yeah. in terms of his activities and <laughs> and correct a lot of, of old stories because, well, this couldn't have happened then because they weren't at this place then and that sort yeah. of thing. I understand there was a there's a biography that is sort of your bete noir in this uh, from the 1970s. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. It's rather a character assassination. Yeah. yeah tell me about uh, Carno's reputation as colored by, I forget his first name, Gallagher. Gallagher. Yeah. Well, there, there are two biographies actually um, prior to this. One was written pretty much um, with Carno as a ghostwriter um, in the 1930s. And that biography was written by one of Carno's stock writers. And 
it's very much um, a sort of homage to his greatness and, and there's very little about his family. It's all about his career and really just suggests he's a, um, a whiter than white superstar. And, and to be fair, within the press and all of the documentary evidence I've seen, um, after that, you know, there was nothing really derogatory about him as an individual or, or even as a as a boss, as an impresario, until um, 1970, I think it was published, um, this biography by Joe Gallagher, who was a tabloid journalist, uh, worked for the Daily Mirror, and his key source was uh, were friends of Carno's ex-wife, who had died 30 years earlier, um, supposedly, um, you know, as a sort of lonely alcoholic, um, abandoned by Carno. Um, and they painted a very, very bleak picture of Carno as this womanizing, wife-beating, um, uh, highly um, aggressive Jekyll and Hyde character. And I read that was my first experience of Carno, really reading that book. And it was just clear to me immediately that it wasn't an objective account, even if some of the stories might have been true. The way they were presented was far from objective. Um, so, you know, it starts on page one of the book suggesting that Carno beat his wife regularly. Um, and, and that's, you know, page one. So it can only right. go downhill <laughs> from there, really. And that set the tone for the whole book. So unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, I, what brought me to Carno in the first place was I actually was looking for a story to create a, uh, a theatre production. And I wrote a musical based on Carno's life. And I actually used the Gallagher book as the basis of that show at that time, not really knowing any different. So I, I wrote and produced and we, when we staged this, this show and as a result of that, um, and some of the, you know, the darker stories were, were key, um, dramatic moments within the production. Um, and then through the course of that, I met some Carno researchers and one of those introduced me to a member of Carno's um, family, one of his descendants. And that snowballed until, I got to know a number of Carno grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And one of them said to me, oh, I've got um, a huge archive of paperwork from Carno's time in my attic. Um, you know, would you be interested? It's literally not been out of the suitcase for 40 years. And I said, yes, of course I would. So we, uh, we met up, we went through this pile of paperwork and it was extraordinary in that... Um, it was actually the archive of Leslie Carno, Carno's youngest son, who had pretty much run the Carno empire when Carno retired. Um, and it was you know, lots of personal letters, contracts, scripts, photographs, um, you name it, really. Um, and it, told, it clearly painted a completely different picture of Carno as a man. Um, so that filled in a lot of huge amount of information around his personal life, his marriages, his relationship with his wife and his ex-wife and his children. Um, and then I, off the back of that, I thought, okay, Gallagher's story clearly is not um, a balanced view. I think I'm going to have to have a go at writing a more objective account. So I then set about, if you like, more academic research and more traditional research in terms of going through newspaper archives and so on um and and it was really particularly the newspaper archives that then starts to flesh out the the detail of his productions and where they were staged and which troupe was in which theater at what time and and actually the most interesting bits of the project for me were the 
sort of detective stories as to trying to piece together bits of information from the newspaper listings, bits from their personal archive, bits from the letters that actually allowed you to you know, see the full picture of what was happening at the time. Um, so yes, it, it became a, you know, a very detailed analysis really. And, and although it's still a long book, about 600 pages, it, it actually at one time was double that. <laughs> and and the, last, uh, the last couple of years were literally editing it down because there were just so many interesting stories, not just about Carno, but everyone, almost everyone Carno worked with or interacted with, you, you could write a book about themselves. And obviously they have done, not least Chaplin and Laurel, but other people like Mari Lloyd and the Dr. Crippin story, which is a very famous British murder sure. story, um, and others, all of which you know, there, have been, there have been a plethora of books written about. So you can go off down all sorts of um, alleyways and... and uh, and tangents and rabbit holes and, and that that is part of the problem really almost part of the problem for me um in in writing the writing the book well let's talk about uh you know carno himself you know he he is definitely a, a figure of the victorian era uh yeah born and raised very poor and quickly decided to make his own way in the world uh very much like most of the movie moguls yeah Let's talk about what the entertainment of the time was as well. I mean, the music halls that he went into uh, were not allowed to have dialogue. Yeah, that was very um, key, really, to 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 his background and what what ultimately led to his style of comedy. In that, that without going into too much detail, the, the history of the theatre was that the, the theatre was banned under the Puritans. That was then restored um, with the restoration of the monarchy and. It really took a long time for theatre to grow back. Originally, there were just theatres with royal patents. Um, so the theatre royals um, were the first theatres that were allowed to operate. And they were very protective of that status. So while that um, sort of gradually grew with more and more towns and cities having their own theatres, um, the the ability to perform, the opportunities to perform were very, very limited. And and what was happening in tandem was that what they called the song and supper rooms, which were basically free and easy singing and, and dancing, etc., in pubs and on the back of pubs and taverns. That was gradually growing to the point where pubs started to build specific rooms and performance spaces on the back of pubs. Um, but that that effectively was potentially going to fall foul of the of the theatres act which which uh, limited theatre to these specific licensed premises and the reason the real reason for that was because any production presented in the theatres was uh, censored or, or um, the scripts and so on had to be approved by the lord chamberlain so if you've got you know lots of hundreds of little individual pubs all doing their own performances it, it with itinerant performers perhaps moving from one pub to the next sometimes doing two or three shows a night it's almost impossible well, it was impossible to have a, a you know an advanced awareness of the performance and the script and the sense this whole censorship thing wasn't possible so the, ultimately there was there was a raft of legislation one part of which effectively changed the theater in that it made it the theatre we know today, really, in that they, they banned smoking, they banned drinking within the theatre. But at the same time, it allowed performance in what became the, the Song and Supper Rooms, which became then the musical. So 
it was Victorian's attempts to kind of clean up the theatre that actually inadvertently uh, and enabled the musical to grow. But the proviso was that within the musical, you could not present a dramatic piece with dialogue because, again, that would have required the censorship uh, process. So the musical performers were solo comedians, singers, um, dancers, acrobats, but not really, in theory at least, no dialogue between two or more performers. Now, almost from the outset, that was, you know, lots of people didn't comply with that fully and, and certainly double acts were, were prevalent. But you wouldn't have seen or, or shouldn't have seen, you know, a reenactment of a, a play or what we would think of today as a comedy sketch with dialogue. Right. Four Poli- five political cabaret was basically yeah. outlawed. Yeah, exactly. And what, so what Carno did was when he, he had beaten an acrobat and an ac- acrobatic troops then as now, like other performers, like magicians and so on, introduced some comedy to break it up. But it was very much visual comedy. When he brought that to the music hall, he gradually transitioned from an acrobatic troupe doing some comedy moves to a comedy troupe doing acrobatics. Um, and so he developed this troupe of silent comedians doing what we would now recognize as silent movie type slapstick and physical comedy. But that was actually quite an innovation at the time within the musical. So he bought that circus background, acrobatic background added the comedy and, and generated this idea of a troupe of comedians. So kind of speechless comedians were how they were, how they were labeled. And, and it, it was a revelation and it, and it just um, uh, snowballed and snowballed until eventually he had, you know, multiple troops, eight or 10 troops touring the country, doing a range of sketches and various shows. And then ultimately all over the world, some of which with, you know, licensed producers, taking his shows from everywhere to Brazil, to Russia, to Australia and South Africa. There's another figure that you talk about, uh, you know, is vaguely aware of a, a, I guess, a circus clown called Grimaldi, who you see as, as a very influential on Carno and all his actors. Yeah. So um, Joe Grimaldi is, you know, in, in Britain, he's perceived to be the father of all clowning, really. He was a Georgian acrobatic clown within the, the, the pantomime of the Georgian theatre, which um, was a thing called the Harlequin, which was a very, um, quite a disciplined, rigid set of characters and um, almost a set piece um, with uh, a number of character, set characters, Harlequin and Pantaloon and Columbine. Um, and they all have quite rigid roles within that um, set piece. And pantomime was used as an afterpiece. And that goes right back to the, um, the Italian tradition of, of, of uh, pantomime. But that's, um, that sort of developed through the Georgian period and became closer and closer to the Christmas pantomime, the British Christmas pantomimes we know today. Whereas Carno's pantomime was in the literal sense, i.e. it was mime, uh, physical performance in mime. Grimaldi was the greatest comedian of his day and very, very famous and some say the first real celebrity. But a lot of that Harlequin uh, set piece comedy, certainly in Carnot's early material, you can see those similar characters and similar similar ideas, the physical, the physical comedy, but also uh, lots of things like they had a lot of stage tricks, stage carpenters with trapdoors and things that would explode and 
people trailing, you know, on trapezes and swinging on chandeliers and through holes in walls and all that kind of stuff, which Grimaldi certainly did, and you know, Carno used as the basis of his work as well. And that, that again, he developed that to to another level. Um, so yeah, he was a very very famous clown, and uh, there's a famous joke which is accredited to Grimaldi, which was he Grimaldi was a famous depressive. And um, for good reason, he, he his wife died in childbirth, I think, certainly died young. Um, and the story is the, the chap goes to the, the doctors and says, I'm suffering suffering with terrible depression and I don't know what to do about it. And the doctor says, oh, you must go and see, go and see Joseph Grimaldi. And uh, the guy says, well, I am Joseph Grimaldi. And it's yeah. that, that gag is repeated by comics almost ever since, you know. And in fact, it appears in one of Chaplin's autobiography, I think. Um so yeah, he's like the father of British clowning, really. And in Britain, clowns are called Joey, really after Grimaldi. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I mean, it's it seems like Grimaldi is sort of one source for that that note of pathos, which is so central to Carnot, and then obviously proteges like Chaplin. That yeah, you know, very much so. it's not just about knocking each other about on the stage, but you know something that sort of, you know, reaches the person. Yeah, I mean, Carno always used to say, and Laurel said this, that Carno would always say to the, the comics in rehearsal, you know, keep it wist, keep it wistful, keep it wistful, gentlemen, and you know, if you punch somebody on the nose, and they, you know, then you would uh, give them a kiss and uh, rub it better, you know, or, or if you knock someone out, you'd you'd then stop pause and put a pillow under their head and this kind of thing right um, which is such a chaplain thing the little filigree yeah. at the end that's sort of tender and delicate you know exactly that's exactly. what what uh separates him from guys just throwing bricks at each other at keystone very much so very much so and that's definitely a you know a carno a carno trait and, and in these early sketches you, you can see how Carnot is developing those ideas. And uh, one of his very early sketches called Early Birds, which is really set in a DOS house, in a in a workhouse. Um, you can see that spread through lots of Chaplin films. Um, and, you know, there's, there's a, um, a, a character in the DOS house who effectively gets robbed and then stabbed at the end, which is really dark in a yeah. comedy sketch. Now, in... in in later versions of it, you can see how that's softened and better balanced. But you know, when you start to look at the reviews in detail, you can see how that learning how to balance the pathos and the comedy, you can almost see it happening in real time. It's really fascinating stuff. Now, how much do we really know about what its comedy was like? I mean, I think something like Chaplin's film, A Night in the Show, which is basically mumming birds put on film. Yeah. You know, yeah. there we have an actual record from someone who was there of what yeah. its comedy was. What else do we know about it? Well, there are there are some other versions uh, of I mean, mumming birds, you know, has, has the supposedly the longest running musical sketch of all time and, and the book you know, makes it clear how, how often it was revived. And, and it probably had a 30-year, if not a 40-year lifespan in one form or another. So inevitably that sketch found its way into lots of other things. And as well as um, Chaplin's version, there's also a film, um, I think it's called Only Me, but it's, it's referred to in a book which Lupino Lane made uh, in about 1926, I think, from memory 27. Um, and that actually is a much uh, closer representation to Carnot's mumming birds, even than the Chaplin um, night in the show, and and that it, that shows 
far more of the characters in the same kind of setting. Um, so that that's a better um, uh, film to look at if you want to get a feel for Mumming Birds. Um, there are lots and lots of Carnot gags within early Laurel and early Chaplin films. Um, I'm kind of getting the titles of the Laurel films off the top of my head, but again, in the book, you know, we, I'll say to you, oh, this this is this appears in Laurel's film, um, and 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 you can see the inspiration of those sketches. But what, of course, we don't have is any of Carnot's sketches filmed by Carnot, um, with one or two exceptions. In the 1930s, um, Gourmand Films made some films, short films of Carnot sketches, but they were, you know, they were inspired by the sketches, I think it's fair to say. Um, so there's a, there was a, a long-running comedy troupe in Britain called The Crazy Gang, and within that gang, which was effectively six double, uh, three double acts, sorry, uh, one of which was called Flanagan and Allen, um, they made a version of Carnot's sketch, The Bailiffs. And it, it, it doesn't really work on film because the physicality isn't the same. Um, so there's the, there's the Bailiffs to film, there's, there's three or four others, some of which are lost. Um, and in fact, Carnot himself made um, film versions of three of the sketches, Mumming Birds, Jail Birds, and uh, Early Birds, I think back in 19, early 20s, and they, as far as I can establish, are lost as well, sadly. So the, what, the, there is some film evidence, but uh, it, it, it's more fun almost to, if you know the sketches well, because the scripts, a lot of the scripts are, uh, uh, still exist in the British Library and elsewhere. If you know the scripts well and you know the gags, then you can spot them, you know, in Chaplin and films of Billy Ritchie and Stan Laurel and others. So... That, that's an exercise in itself, yeah. actually, trying to remember, remember the jokes while watching hundreds of films. And, oh, I, I recognize that, or I spot that, or there's a bit of an influence there. Well, yeah, at one point you're talking about uh, a gag about a customer picking a stamp out from the middle of a stamp sheet and saying, I want yeah. that one. I'm like, that's W.C. Fields. So, yeah, you know, exactly. did it, exactly. Fields saw them somewhere. I mean, he actually... What was he? he crossed paths with him back in England at some point, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he toured extensively in Britain, as I'm sure you know, and and he, he must have come across that somewhere. I think I think that's in a Fields film that um, Senate, the pharmacist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, <laughs> whether it, it went from Chaplin to Senate to Fields, who knows? <laughs> yeah, degrees of separation. <laughs> um, but though, you can pick out those gags you know, from the existing scripts, the existing Carnot scripts. What can be quite difficult, um, I mean, I'll give you the, the, the best example of that really, is that in um, The Kid, there's the famous scene where Chaplin is, is breaking, they break a window in order to repair it, you know, offer the, to repair the window. Now, th there are plenty of Chaplin biographers who have credited that as a Carnot gag. Because in an early, in the early bird sketch, a very early sketch of Carnot's, Carnot is a glazier, and indeed in real life he had been a glazier and a plumber. So you jump to the conclusion that Chaplin took that idea straight from a Carnot sketch. But but actually, I've I've read hundreds of reviews of that sketch in great detail, and I've never seen that referred to. And Carnot did not claim that to be his own when he wrote his biography in, in 1939 and he would have done I'm sure but later Fred Carnot Jr. used that in something he did so actually that's perhaps a bit of inspiration from Carnot, a gag created by Chaplin but then used by Fred Carnot Jr. later 
and it all gets very confused as to who you know who <laughs> followed who. Right. <laughs> Well, yeah, let's talk about uh, how he trained people. I mean, you mentioned a lot of names that are kind of a bit dim, but I recognize that they're, you know, notable comedians that pass through. Obviously, yeah. eventually it's Chaplin and Laurel who are the ones that we primarily remember uh, yeah. for their Carnot training, which they were. Chaplin didn't give a lot of credit to anybody, but, you know, his old governor, Carnot, was, yeah. was definitely yeah. one of the few. Um, yeah. And they and they both saw it as a as an important place where they learned their craft. So, well, I think Carno, one of his, um, you know, he he would always say that one of his great strengths was actually as a talent spotter, and it was partly because he genuinely liked to train people up in his in his image. In other words, you know, if you, if you take on board a, a fully formed comic, they're going to do it their way. Whereas if you take on board a youngster, you know, you can you can develop that comedy to suit your own way of working and your own material. So it was partly that, but it was also, you know, purely on cost. If he could create a comedy troupe of youngsters who were good quality comedians, he could do that cheaply. Whereas if he bought in an established comedian, he was obviously going to have to pay a lot more money. So it was, I, I think I described it in the book, I certainly I call the Alex Ferguson approach, Alex Ferguson, the manager of Manchester United football, who famously, would always take on young players and train them to a high level rather than buying multi-million pound strikers. Sure. So Carno had the same approach. And in terms of, you know, the number, I, I mean, I've worked out there are well over 2000 performers worked within Carno comedy at one point or another. And I think they fall into two or three different categories. You've got almost a sort of um, a, a literal army of Small time comedians, you know, the backup troops, really, the, the the supers and the extras that would make up a company of 20 people supporting three or four lead comedians. And Chaplin became a lead comedian, Sid Chaplin and so on. Now, Stan Laurel was never really a lead comedian for Carno. He was within that that sort of backup troupe. Um and he was, he, I mean, he used to say he was Chaplin's understudy, which you can argue whether or not that's the case, because they all used to understudy each other, really. But you, you'd have these kind of just a very large volume of comedians that were coming through the, the fun factory and Carno's training school and performing in multiple sketches. I mean, he had a total of about 90 sketches and 90 productions across his career. Um, so that was just a churn, huge number of comedians coming through. Then you'd have uh, the, the the ones who stood out, who became the lead comedians in those companies and would, would play in a variety of sketches. Some of them went on to be, be in film, not just Chaplin, but Laurel, Billy Ritchie, Billy Reeves, Jimmy Aubrey, Charlie Rogers, Albert Austin, Eric Campbell, and many others. Um, others uh, didn't go into film, but became pretty big names within British Music Hall and subsequently Variety. Um, so people like Will Hay and um, uh, Fred Kitchen and um, these kind of comedians in Britain. Um, and later, some of them transferred into British film. So Will Hay was probably his, after Chaplin and Laurel within in Britain, Will Hay was, you know, the next big thing. He was the, he was the biggest name probably. Um, of the 30s, I think he was sort of, if not the the best-selling film actor, film comedian in Britain of the 30s. He was certainly in the top three. Oh, that must have just come in. 
It's a place in Ireland called Buggles, Kelly. Oh, that's nothing. There's a place in Wales called Clan for Wilkwil and Wilfco, Goggery, Clan Silio, Go, 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 Go. And then, you know, Carno's career developed then from physical comedy to, to more what we would think of as review or musical comedy. And then again, that developed later to where he was very much an impresario rather than a performer. And he was then putting together productions some of which, you know, led to very, what became very, very, very well-known British comedians, particularly the Crazy Gang. Are you for the Goldberger studio, sir? Yes. Yes. Well, isn't it nice of him to send us this shadowman? That's nothing. When we get down to the studio, they're going to give us free beer. Well, we like some of that free beer that he hasn't got to go with the bread and butter. You haven't got to go with the sausages. I haven't got to. I wouldn't ask stuff myself. <laughs> and people like Sandy Powell, who probably would mean absolutely nothing to to an American audience, but in Britain were big, big stars of the 40s and 50s. Um, so his influence he just goes on and on and on and on and on. And many of those comedians then became, you know, inspirations for the next generation of comedians who went right through to the 70s and 80s and even today. So, Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, he really does span from like the Victorian era to television in terms of his influence. And, you know, as you say at one point in the book, you can see his style of comedy up to the present day, uh, I forget what you mentioned, like the young ones and yeah, Mr. Bean and these kinds. Oh of yeah, Mr. Characters. Bean is is very much in that that sort of classic semi-silent comedy. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I mean, I, I think I said somewhere in there, and it really struck me that it was such a huge um, a change of not just um, comedy, just in society. He he started on the musicals in 1888, which was the year of Jack the Ripper and Sherlock Holmes being published. <laughs> yeah. that, you know, you can immediately imagine what London looked like in, in the summer of, of 1888. And then he was still trying desperately to get shows put on the stage when he passed away in 1941, which was a month or two before Pearl Harbor. So you've got Jack the Ripper to Pearl Harbor is, is a quite extraordinary, you know, 50 years really. Um, where film, radio, the telephone, the motor car, you know, not just two world wars, but in Britain, you know, the Boer War, into the First World War, into the Second World War. It's such a huge change um, in, in society and, in, and just social history. And I, what I've tried to do in the book, I, I've read so many other biographies in the course of the research that I found... I, find, I, I know there's an argument about whether a biography should just be chronological or whether it should be, you know, jump around a little bit. I personally prefer them reasonably chronological um, because I actually like to understand, you know, who's who and what's happening in some semblance of order. That's just a personal preference. But I also like to know what was happening in, in the world, you know, in the world at the time, particularly if that's having an effect on your protagonist. So Carno was using a lot of um, a lot of events of the day in his comedy, wh whether it was suffragettes, you know, political problems for the government. Uh, there was a, a famous football soccer um, scandal in 1907, I think, from memory. And that led to Carno writing the football match, which was a very big show for him. And that was actually the show that perhaps gave Chaplin his first break with Carno. Um, and that was all prompted by what was going on in you know, in, in the real world. And uh, I find that as interesting as Carnot's story itself, really. Now, personally, I mean, he was successful. He had multiple troops going around the world, which is kind of amazing to me how you operate, 
you know, eight comedy troops at the same time. That just seems like such chaos. <laughs> you know, it's a regular yeah. Fred Carno's army kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, each, each troop would have had its own manager. So the chaplain's troop, famously, the manager was a guy called Alf Reeves, who was the brother of Billy Reeves. Um, and Alf did perform himself in the troop in a small part, but he, he fundamentally ran that company. So he, his job was to, you know, Carno would perhaps get a six-week booking take the troop across the Atlantic. They'd, they'd play those six weeks, but as soon as they landed, Alpha Reeves would be onto the booking agents trying to secure the next, the next mini tour of, of uh, Sullivan and Considine or whatever it might be. And then they'd get another eight weeks and then another four weeks somewhere else. And then another, and that was Alpha Reeves' job really. So he was responsible for finding the bookings, looking after the company, you know, pulling the material together, selecting which, which of the half a dozen sketches in that particular company's repertoire they would do so when you look through the the detail of the listings and the history you can see that each troupe had its own little manager and the manager might be one of the performers or it might be the stage manager or whatever but they would it would almost run like a little mini small um small enterprise of its own right. under this carno banner kind so of it was a quite franchise a system yeah quite a sophisticated uh, management approach really quite quite complicated um, but as you say, it must have been very difficult. And, and in fact, uh, there's a whole section in the book where it, it becomes apparent that the the empire has got too large for him to control. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it starts to get literally chaotic with, you know, he suddenly realizes that his wardrobe departments are making clothes for themselves and, you know, half half of London are walking around in, <laughs> in cargo costumes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so, so, you know, and he gets into all sorts of trouble. But yeah, it, and actually, ultimately, it probably got too big for him to manage. And um, particularly in America, of course, the biggest challenge was um, rivals stealing his material and his and his comics. Um, right. Al- almost impossible to stop from, you know, 3,000 miles away, whatever it was. And right. When is it that he's suing Max Linder? That's like 1912 or something like that. That uh, yeah, 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 Linder has Linder has stolen one of his routines, basically, and you know there, it's one of the first fights over, you know, whether that sort of yeah, material can be legally a, protected. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and it, it kind of set the set precedents around copyright because the legislation just didn't cover for film because it didn't exist and uh, I think it was 1905 Pathé had made a version of Mummingbirds with, okay. with Max Linder and, and actually again you can see that's another version of Mummingbirds which is available on film which was lost until fairly recently but yeah, you know it's only I think it's only about eight minutes long or something and you watch it and you think well how can that really have been a problem you know compared <laughs> to a 20 minute half hour live stage show with but I think film was so new and so extraordinary to people that they were just blown away by anything on film. And I think there's, there's a certain extent of, of Laurel and Chaplin and the other comedians of the day that a lot of the material they were doing, and it's not taking anything away from Chaplin's genius because it's all about interpretation, etc. but a lot of the actual basic material was old musical material, but the fact it was being done on film in a new medium, you know, just, it was a new audience. The audience came to it as if it was the most original new, new stuff that they'd ever seen. So right. I think there was, you know, that, that was a benefit to them, but keeping hold of his comics was a real problem. And initially they were poached or being poached by rival theater companies who literally were producing in America, particularly were producing Carno sketches wholesale 
you know, verbatim. And that, that was a challenge. And some of the Carno comics were, were joining other rival companies. But then before very long, it was the, the new stu- studios, the fledgling studios that were that were the problem. And that's where Carno's comedians disappeared to. And that was the beginning of the end for him, really. Although it's interesting that what did him in financially wasn't show business, but it was a hotel that he built, a resort um, that was just an endless money pit. I, I was that's one of the things that my jaw just dropped in in the book is that I've seen footage of this hotel in Clockwork Orange. Uh, yeah. One of the last things that it was ever used for was one of these scenes where the Droogies attack another gang. It was around by the derelict casino that we came across Billy Boy and his four Droogs. They were getting ready to perform a little of the old in-out, in-out on a weepy young divotchka they had there. And it's very acrobatic, yeah. as you point out. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. they are they're acting not unlike a Fred Carno troupe, except with more ultra violence. Absolutely. I mean, and, and Carcino, it's often said, and, you know, like all of these things, it's an, it's a simplification that, that Carcino was, you know, he's undoing. And there's no doubt that, that ultimately that really was what um, ruined him. But um, it actually ran successfully quite a long time. I think it opened in 1913 from memory. And it and it was 1927 before it, it he was eventually bankrupted. So, you know, it had a 12, 14 years of of uh, of op- being operated reasonably successfully. And and the, there were two things hit him. Uh, well, three things. First of all, the, the British weather, which is never conducive to uh, holidaying <laughs> right. up river. Um, secondly, that as as we went through sort of World War One, that was a huge impact because suddenly. The sort of the hooray Henrys and the, the chaps in boaters and blazers of the Edwardian era were just wiped out by World War One, both physically and um, in terms of their kind of status in society. So that was a real problem. Um, and then after the war, the motor car was starting to become popular. Instead of people getting on the train and going literally on holiday an hour away up the river, they wanted to go to Brighton or Blackpool or other Victorian seaside towns that by then had become where you went on holiday. So that was a problem. Um, but also it, it was just, you know, he wasn't a hotelier. Um, and I just don't think he ran it particularly well. So all those things combined um, and and its initial car. I mean, originally it intended, there was an existing hotel on the island. He intended to just refurbish it. He, he budgeted to spend, I think, £10,000 on this hotel. In the end, he demolished it completely, built a completely new hotel to, to the tune of 140000 £150,000 pounds now in 1913 when the average um, annual wage in britain was about 70 pounds that that puts that in context right um and he never really recovered from the the initial cost of building it you know it was mortgaged up to the hill and and his ongoing professional work really just the money he made from that just kept getting sunk into keeping the hotel afloat much like max senate he kind of you know he comes to an impoverished end uh yeah but as you say i mean his his style of comedy in many ways has lasted to this day and obviously lasts in terms of the training that chaplin and laurel in particular displayed on film so so big deal fred carno and somebody that we needed to know more about yeah well i, I hope it's 
for me, the, the real ambition was to make sure that, that a we had some more detail and we we could get you know put put right some of the some of the errors in the previous biographies, both in terms of the just simple things like the, the correct order of the shows and the dates that shows opened and when they closed and who was in them. So that's all that detail is there in the appendices, if if not in the main text. But also, t- I wanted to try and tell his story in an objective way so he was certainly no saint you know he'd got a darker side he was quite a complex character quite a difficult character but i've i've done my best to present two sides of arguments and show how what might have happened what might not have happened and, and if he's doubt to say so you know um, i mean gallagher in the front of his book actually says something on the lines of you know i've imagined many of the conversations in yeah. <laughs> oh <laughs> which kind of you know that says everything about it really and there's no index and there's no sources etc so i've tried to combine hopefully telling what i certainly think is a really interesting rags to riches back to rags story but for those that are really interested in the detail the scholars the chaplain scholars and the Laura hardy scholars the detail is there um, in the appendices as well with every show he ever did and where it's opened and who was in it and this kind of thing. So I'm hoping it will appeal to, you know, both the, the, the absolute silent film scholars and just someone who just is interested in, in a really good historical romp because it is. It's, uh, I think it's a really genuinely interesting story. We are David Crump's Fred Carnot, The Legend Behind the Laughter, from Bruin Books, is out now. A link will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, Allison Strauss and David Crump, and to Pamela Hutchinson and Hannah Bradley Crowell. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.